Okay, so we took all of your questions, and I just want to say we were really encouraged um, by the amount of thoughtfulness that was in those questions, and, uh, and we did our best to try to combine a lot of the ones that were similar so that we could get to as many of the topics that were there as possible, but there were a few hundred, I think, so uh, we obviously can't get to, to all of them. So good job on y'all, and, uh, and yeah, we'll just, we'll just go ahead and dive right in, if that's all right with you. Great. Um, so we had a lot of questions just regarding some of the uh, ways that we think about um, the Bible. Um, one of the ones that we had was, sorry, uh, we had a lot of questions about how people kind of think about the Bible as Christians and how, um, how we deal with, with dealing, or I'm sorry, how we deal with thinking about that more deeply. Uh, one of those along those lines was how accurate is the origin story in the Bible um, and how does it align with what science and evidence says about humanity's origins? Yeah, um, I'm not an Old Testament expert nor a biologist, so I have an opinion that is not heavily encumbered by actual information. <laughs> but as a, as a theologian who draws from experts in these other fields, and in the light of the talk I gave last night, I'd say this. I mean, I think as, as Christians who are part of the mainstream tradition of the Christian faith, um, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God and that it does, in the world, the work that God wants it to do. And part of the work that the Bible is supposed to do in the world is to teach us some true things. Now, it's not the only thing. That's why I think to say that the Bible is true is to say something that is important, but it's not enough because the Word of God isn't just a book of interesting facts, right? It's not an almanac of cool things that the Supreme Being wants you to know. Um, in fact, Paul tells us that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness that we may be complete, right? That's the point. The Bible uh, is, is given to us to turn us into certain kinds of people and certain kinds of communities. So we have to keep thinking, why did God give us the Bible? It's a kind of technology that's given to the world to do certain kinds of things. So we have to then use that technology for its intended purpose. And if we don't use the Bible for its intended purpose, we can misuse it and then get into difficulty. So when we come to something like the origin stories in Genesis 1 and 2, we have to try to understand why did God give this account to everybody? Because this is the creation story that's given to every culture in every part of the world ever. Now, if you think of, as an author, how would you write about the creation of the world such that it would be useful to everybody who's ever lived? That's a pretty daunting literary task, right? And so we would expect the Bible to be odd. We would expect it to not be like ordinary books, and it really isn't. And this story is not like that. So for us to come at the Bible as 21st century Westerners and to want Genesis 1 and 2 to speak directly to us is to misunderstand the nature of the Bible. All right? You following me now? Right? It, so that when the Bible is trying to teach us information, when, it, when that's its object, I believe what it teaches us is true because it comes from God, and I can't imagine any really good purpose being served by God teaching us things that aren't true. So I presume that when God gives us scripture in order to teach us things about the world, that they're reliable, they're true. 
But the point of teaching us true things in Genesis 1 and 2 is not to satisfy our curiosity about paleontology. Right? It is to form us into the right kinds of people who see that God is the one true God and the world is good and it has order and it has purpose and we have an order and purpose. Like that's the main idea. What I was trying to get at last night, I think is the main idea of Genesis 1. I didn't just pick a few things out of it. I think that's its, its thrust. So it is poetic language. It clearly is stylized language. This, you know, this one, two, three day thing maps onto, as Augustine noticed, four, five, six, and then there's seven, if you notice the, the way the, the themes are. There's, there's an obvious poetic kind of structure to that. And that doesn't mean, by saying it's poetry, I don't mean that it's not true. Poems often tell us true things, but it's stylized. It's a literary form meant to accomplish several kinds of things at once, which is why I think there are ways in which Christianity conflicts with certain kinds of views um, that are held by some scientists. But the only reason that Christianity, and the Bible in particular, conflicts with the views of some scientists is that those scientists are atheists or they hold to some other kind of worldview. It's a religion-religion kind of conflict. There is no final conflict between the Bible and science, but there is conflict between people who believe in God and people who don't. Uh, and that's where the real problem lies between uh, Bible believers and certain kinds of people like the new atheists who are atheists, right? The, the, the problem is about theism versus atheism. The problem is not about Christianity versus uh, science because uh, I think in the nature of the case, the Bible intends to tell us it does the job God wants it to, to do, including tell us the truth about things. In a similar vein, uh, this person asks, certain scholars say that the events of the Pentateuch didn't actually happen. How should we think about this, and how um, is historical accuracy relevant to our understanding and relationship with Christ? So the, the question has to do with the first five books of the Bible and five gives us penta, like pentagram, but it's called the Pentateuch. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, sometimes called the Book of Moses, um, because traditionally Moses is, is uh, ascribed the, the authorship of it, um, that some events there uh, presumably didn't happen. And in fact, usually they, they pick on uh, the next book, uh, the Joshua, and say that Jericho wasn't a great city back then, and there weren't these giant walls, and they didn't fall down. Um, well. Uh, the, one of the speakers you've had here before, my friend Ian Proven, uh, has dealt with some of this in the um, history of Israel that he and another one of our colleagues, Phil, Phil Long, uh, they co-wrote this with a guy named Tremper Longman. And if you're interested in these questions of the history and the historicity of the Old Testament, the introduction to the Old Testament by Proven, Long, and, and Longman is uh, a very good uh, question, and, and the opening uh, essay uh, deals with these kinds of things directly. Again, I think uh, the Bible can't be doing the work that God wants it to do if it tells us that A happened and A didn't happen. Um, so I accept that uh, as a kind of matter of first principles that if the Bible said that such and such happened, and it's pretty clear that, that it's supposed to have happened in history, that it did. Uh, a lot of Old Testament criticism, and even though I'm not a biblical scholar, one of my doctoral uh, exams was in the history of biblical studies, so I know a little bit about that. 
Um, frankly, a, a lot of the claim that that didn't happen is really, we have no evidence that it happened, which is different, right? I can't find my keys, therefore my keys do not exist. <laughs> no, <laughs> you just misplace them, right? You can't find them yet. Um, so, so th and unfortunately, that's what it is. Well, we're quite satisfied that we've dug up enough and, 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 we've, and we've explored this area, and we would have found it if it were there. Well, that's a pretty strong claim in archaeology, a very strong claim indeed. So strong that I don't take it very seriously, as you can see. Um, so. I'm not inclined to be terribly worked up about this because archaeologists have been wrong before. Historians have been wrong before. And I'm trained as a historian, and a lot of this isn't very, very good history. However, Christianity, unlike almost all the other religions of the world, with the exception of Judaism, it's the only one I can think of that comes to mind, and for the same reason, Christianity is deeply vulnerable to the charge that what you say happened didn't happen. And if certain things, particularly crucial things, uh, can be understood to have not happened, then we're in big trouble, right? The resurrection of Jesus is the most obvious one, right? What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus, in fact, has not been raised from the dead, our faith is in vain, right? It crumbles into, into, into dust. Just like for the Jews, if God did not, in fact, rescue Israel from Egypt, if the exodus didn't happen, as some skeptics will say it didn't, if the exodus didn't happen, then all kinds of problems f flow downstream of that because the very Ten Commandments begin with, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, therefore you shall have no other gods before me. Right? God ties the two together. I'm your savior, you owe me. Right? I'm the one who cared, no other gods cared for you, I cared for you, uh, you're my people. So that did, if, you know, if A didn't happen, then the consequence doesn't follow. Uh, so I think that Christianity is, is quite vulnerable to, uh, to being destroyed. If you, if you can actually find the bones of Jesus in Palestine, Christianity in any recognizable form is done. And no other religion's like that. Um, it, but what we are, because, and, it, and that's not just a kind of, oh, it's kind of an interesting thing about Christianity. No, the very dynamic, the very core of Christianity is that God is at work in the real world, saving the real world so that the real world can go to its destiny. So of course it's historical. You see what I'm saying? It's not a kind of interesting accident that Christianity loads up on this particular story. The whole thrust of Christianity is that we needed saving and this is the way we needed saving, so God did that. He became a human being to align himself in solidarity with the human race, lived an innocent life, taught us what we need to know, and then died, suffered, died on a cross to atone for the sins of the world, and that changed things, because something had to happen in history. Something had to happen. And once it's happened, the world is in a different situation than it was before. Jesus is raised from the dead, and we look forward to the resurrection as well. So when I've lectured in China, for instance, I try to help uh, the, the students that I've, I've talked to, to understand that when Christianity loads up on Jesus and, and makes a big deal about the career of Jesus, and it really happened, and it happens that way, it's because our whole religion depends upon it happening and happening that way, in a way that actually isn't really true for most of the religions of Asia. It doesn't really matter whether there actually was Gautama Siddhartha and he sits under the bow tree and achieves enlightenment 
and out comes the teaching of the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path. What, what matters about Buddhism is whether it works, whether the world is like the Buddhists say it is, and whether, in fact, this is the path to detachment and, and the ending of suffering. It doesn't really matter whether Lao Tzu lived or not. Taoism is either a workable philosophy of life or it isn't. But Christianity isn't a workable philosophy of life. It is the story of how God has saved and is saving and will save us. And if this crucial episode, the, the career of Jesus of Nazareth, didn't really happen in pretty much the way the New Testament says, then everything else falls apart. And so that trusts the books of the scripture with an unknown author. Yeah, well, actually, <laughs> that's quite a bit of the Bible. See, a, a, lot of, a lot of the books of the Bible don't actually have names attached to them. Remember those five books of the Bible I was just talking about? Like them, like the first five. Right? They don't say, and I, Moses, write this with mine own hand. It doesn't say that. It just starts. So a lot of the books of the Old Testament and several in the New, like the first five books of the New Testament, don't have names either. In our Bibles, it says the gospel according to Matthew, but you can't actually find in the actual Greek text, I, Matthew, write this gospel. Or Mark, Luke, or John, or Luke, who is supposed to have written Acts. So now we're in big trouble, right? You thought we were in trouble a couple minutes ago. Now we're in big trouble, right? I mean, like the Old Testament anyway. Don't understand it. Oh, now you're taking the gospels too. That's bad. So sometimes the question can come with, with the so-called pseudepigrapha, where we think that perhaps there are, are, are false names attributed to, uh, to the authorship, or a book like the book of Hebrews doesn't have. But actually, quite a bit of the Bible doesn't. Um, but I, I don't trust the Bible as the word of God, because I think certain people in the past wrote it. I trust the Old Testament because Jesus did. Right? Jesus is a good Jewish boy who grows up <laughs> I do not, not want to know what you mean by that that's uh, good <laughs> Jesus is a rabbi uh, who <laughs> takes the old testament as the word of god so we do. So that takes care of the first 39 books right there. And then the church has always understood, because the early church was Jewish, that God is going to give new scripture. And God does. And the early church, from all we were able to piece together uh, archaeologically, um, the early church comes to very rapid consensus about which of the New Testament writings really belong in the New Testament and which other Christian writings that are circulating in the early church don't. Um, you'll sometimes hear, uh, especially in the skeptical press, that the, the canon or the list of approved books in the New Testament isn't settled until the fourth century. You know, uh, that, that great scholar Dan Brown, <laughs> right, wrote the Da Vinci Code, and, uh, <laughs> right, and other... <laughs> really stupid books. I mean, they're fun, but they're really stupid. I mean, in the Da Vinci Code, he doesn't even have the streets of Paris going in the right direction. It's really bad. Um, 
so, so we can't get the Paris streets right. He doesn't get much else right either. But the idea that, that the 27 books of the New Testament were codified in the fourth century isn't true. Um, there are certain councils that are officially held in the fourth century because it was illegal to hold such councils before the fourth century. Because Christianity was illegal before Constantine in 313. So, of course, they're not having big councils to decide these things before that. But what we do have are churches that are accepting or rejecting Christian documents from the very get-go. And all of our evidence points to the fact that all of the major books of the New Testament are accepted by the consensus of the Christian church by the end of the first century, like very early on. It's really interesting because we have evidence even in the New Testament that there are other letters of Paul that are circulating, but they don't make it in. It's not like everything Paul wrote was inspired. There's, a, there's at least one or two other letters to the Corinthians. There seems to be a letter at the end of Colossians. He talks about the letter to Laodicea, and, and, and you, know, you read that to them, and they have them send their letter to you, and that Laodicean letter's gone. So the early church somehow, I think by the Spirit of God, <laughs> the early church somehow recognized Scripture and came to a very quick consensus about that, and these would be the people who would know best what belongs, right? Because these are the people who had been taught by the people who knew Jesus personally. And, and that's what we're looking for. We're looking for the attestation of the people who would best judge what is authentic Jesus material and what isn't. And who better than the actual apostles or the people who were trained by the apostles. And that's why this early consensus is so important to saying, yeah, the early church they weren't quite sure what to do, for instance, with 2nd and 3rd John, those books that are so close to your heart. Right? Is there a 2nd John? A 3rd one? Really? Yep. Uh, they weren't really sure what to do with Jude. And they weren't sure what to do with Hebrews because it didn't have a name attached to it. And Revelation was just too weird. So it, it kind of comes in and out as well. And then a couple of really good early New Testament uh, era writings that aren't in the New Testament, the Shepherd of Hermas, uh, the Didache, they are kind of in and out because they're so, such good books that the early church is still trying to decide whether it's scripture or not. But there's relatively little controversy. And I think that's a historical fact that leads to me to think that, in fact, God was supervising that on behalf of the early church. So we'll take it from there. So we're going to shift gears a little bit uh, to a little bit of heaven and hell and everything in between. So the first one, yeah, we like that. Um, do you think hell exists? If so, what is it like? <laughs> and if not, why? I think we're out of time. Um, well, no, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm on the record as having views about this. Uh, there is, uh, I've contributed the four views of hell or something, I think it's called, that I've contributed the chapter. Um, mine is called The Correct View. <laughs> it's, not, it's not the title, actually. I, I tried that. The editor made me change it. Um, but, but the whole book is a lie because there aren't four views. There, there, the, the fourth chapter is actually on purgatory, which isn't about hell. And, and the third view is universalism, the idea that there really isn't a hell in the serious a traditional sense, it's just a kind of purgatory. So there's really only two views left in the Christian community. Um, the one view, the majority view, is not my view. So I will be honest with you about this now. The majority view is that uh, at the end of days, Jesus comes back 
Everybody's resurrected. Well, so far, everybody believes that. Every, every Christian should believe that. And then there is judgment. And the majority view is that those who are not aligned with God and connected with God will go to suffer uh, privation. They will lose all the goods, but they will also have actual pain um, uh, because of their uh, sins. They'll look and they will stay in pain forever. And that's the eternal torment view, as it's sometimes called in theological conversation. And that's the view that many of you would think is the traditional view. The minority view that I and a number of other scholars and Christians of various sorts would hold uh, is traditional up to the point where judgment is meted out. So yes, those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, they go on to the world to come. Everybody else whose names are not written in the Book of Life, they atone for their sins because somebody has to pay for your sins. This will actually maybe get us, give us an answer to one or two other questions that might have been asked. I don't know. But one of the really interesting questions in our day uh, that stumbles a lot of people who wonder about Christianity is, Jesus, you say, dies on the cross for our sins so that God can forgive us. But why doesn't God just forgive us? Like, why does anybody have to die? I mean, I forgive people without anybody having to die. Am I more moral than God, right? What's up with God? So what, have you encountered that? There's a lot of people who really stumble over this, including people who are Christians. So you're like, what's with this blood sacrifice stuff? Like, what's going on here? There seems to be around the world, I've taught world religions for 30 years, and I'm not an expert on all of them, but I have a nodding acquaintance with most of them. And in tribal religions around the world, and in some other religions as well, there is this very strong intuition that if you do the wrong thing, if you commit a moral wrong, you, in a sense, leave a mark on the universe. Now, in South Asia, this would be the idea of karma. Karma means action, and if you commit a good action, it has a good consequence for you and for the universe, and if you commit a bad action, it has a bad consequence for you and for the universe. It's, it's almost like physics, like if you do this, you leave a kind of mark, you leave a kind of impact. And the way cultures all around the world process this is that if you in fact do wrong things, if you break a taboo, if you commit a, a crime of some kind, the way to atone for that is to suffer. You, you did something wrong, and so there is a kind of pain associated with that to make up for the damage you did. I mean, you should try to repair the damage, too. But if you, if you can't repair the damage, then you, you pay for your sins with suffering. And this is why, all over the world, people engage in sacrifice to the gods. They're giving up something. They're suffering the loss of money or of uh, grain or of animals. And they give that up. And ultimately, if the gods aren't satisfied, they start sacrificing slaves, right? They start sacrificing captives. And if that doesn't work and they're really desperate, they start sacrificing themselves, right? Their children and others in human sacrifice. Now, the Hebrew Bible actually is in tune with that. And that's the whole sacrificial of the Old Testament. It is a tribal religion that also believes that when you've committed sins, yes, you should make up for them with your neighbor, but there's a kind of damage to the universe that needs to be atoned for. It needs to be paid for by sacrifice. 
But what Yahweh does is draw a sharp line and say, no human sacrifice. That, you know, they sacrifice everything up to that, though. Everything in their economy is fair game, including their most prized domestic animals. But nothing above that. And that is an interesting line that then the prophets wonder about. In the later prophets in the Bible, they start wondering out loud, but how can the blood of bulls and goats possibly atone for the sins of humans? Right? The poor, the poor sheep, right? The poor, uh, the, the poor oxen. Like, like, the animals didn't sin, we sinned. So how can killing them atone? This is part of the progress of religious understanding that happens in the course of the Old Testament. And by the time we get to the, the last part of the Old Testament, the prophets are wondering about that too. Like, this, this doesn't really quite make sense. I can see this as kind of pictorial, but it can't literally atone because we're the ones who need to pay for this. Exactly. And the Old Testament ends, and 400 years goes by, and then behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And God says, you know, your intuition was partly right. There does have to be human sacrifice. And there will be human sacrifice, but I'm willing to be that human sacrifice, and you can benefit from that if you will accept it. And that's why Jesus has to suffer and die. And that's why he tries to get across to his disciples that the Son of Man has to suffer and die. There's a kind of problem that's right there in the world that has to be fixed. Jesus is not suffering and dying merely as a kind of grotesque object lesson to demonstrate the love of God. The love of God is demonstrated, and the righteousness of God, Paul says, is demonstrated in the same act that Jesus is fixing what needs fixing. He's making right, like the just judge, he's justifying things through paying for our sins in a quite literal way. And you can either have Jesus pay for your sins, or you'll pay for your sins, which brings us back to hell. Because at the end of days, either your name is associated with Jesus, okay, Jesus paid for your sins, you're good to go, or no, I'm sorry, you have to pay. And the minority tradition that I represent would say then, then you in fact go to the place of payment and you suffer for your sins, but only for your sins. You don't suffer more than that. I mean, I'm a pretty bad sinner, but there's only so much I can get up to in 80 years, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, I can sin even more than I do now. I mean, I could really make a project of it. <laughs> but even if I sinned my head off until I died, there would be a finite amount of damage I can do, right? Because I'm dead at 80 or whatever. And the second position is, and I have to work that off. And hell is the place of making things right. It's the furnace that purges the universe of evil so that the universe can go on full of shalom without this nasty little pocket of sin. That's the problem with the traditional view. And it's a problem that shows up in the history of theology. Thomas Aquinas, that great thinker, ends up feeling he has to defend God. And so he says, the blessedness of the saved is actually enhanced knowing about the tortures of the damned because thereby God is glorified. And I think, I wonder how long Thomas had to think about that before he wrote that down and how he felt about it once he did. Because that doesn't make me feel God's glorious. That makes me feel God is some kind of sadist. That, that he's actually keeping beings alive that would otherwise be dead just so they can be in more pain. That doesn't 
make sense to me. And so it doesn't make sense to a lot of us. And so this minority tradition says, no, you're judged, you suffer, but you suffer only in strict proportion to your deserts, right? And then you're done. And because you're not linked with the only source of immortality in the cosmos, God, then you simply wink out of existence. You suffer, and then you're done. You pay your debt, and it's over. So it's plenty bad, right? This doesn't let anybody feel, oh, good, well, hell's not so bad. Well, no, it's not so bad, but it's really bad. That's why it's called a lake of fire. Have you ever fallen into a lake? Now, imagine it being fire. <laughs> right? Sounds bad to me. So it's, it's not to be tri trifled with. It's pretty bad, but it's no worse than it has to be. And so I, I offer this view to you as I think something really helpful as we're trying to evangelize. One of my concerns as an evangelist and apologist, as somebody who goes public about Christianity a lot, is like, let's not make it harder for our neighbors than it has to be, right? Let's not put obstacles that aren't really biblically justified. And this traditional understanding of hell as eternal torment is unnecessarily horrible. And it actually rebounds back on the nature of God. It's very hard to say that God is really loving, but he also likes the idea of keeping beings in agony forever. Like, how does that go together? And lots of Christians just, well, they just double think it. But I don't think you have to. I think you have to say God regretfully allows people who refuse to be associated with him to then do what has to be done. They pay for their sins, but then they're done. And that's what I think is the better way to see it. That book is uh, published by Harper Zondervan. It's easy to find on the net. It's uh, sort of four views of hell. I'm one of the authors. If you want to explore that, I, I commend it to you. When you paid for your sins, you stop existing, right? Because the only way to keep existing is to be linked with the only being who can keep you in existence, namely God. And since you've refused that, you've cut your tether, as it were, to God, then you pay for your sins, and then you're, you're over. Yeah. yeah, there's a book called Four Views, I Think, of Hell, and I'm one of the authors of that. That's the easiest way to Google it. Okay. Yeah. And this one is, what is the intermediate state you referred to between death and heaven? Yeah, there's, uh, there's two different views of this in the Christian community. One, again, a majority traditional view, and one a more uh, recent and, and popular view. And on this one, I don't have particularly have an opinion. Not that you should care all that much about what I think, but just for what it's worth, I don't actually have an opinion on this one. Uh, I just don't know. Um, the, the traditional view is that when believers die, their bodies and their souls split, right? And the body goes into the ground or into an urn or whatever, right? It, it, it disintegrates over time. And the soul uh, invisibly goes up to be with Jesus and perhaps with other Christians as well. And so what happened to grandma? Grandma's with Jesus. And can she see us? Well, who knows, right? Maybe she can. Uh, depends on how imaginative you are. So there's a sense in which all the, the, the blessed departed are up with Jesus. And what about the, uh, the ones who aren't saved? Well, that's even more complicated. What happens to them? Because the final judgment hasn't happened yet. So the traditional view actually isn't terribly well worked out, actually. But it's meant to comfort. So we say things like, Grandma's got to be with Jesus, and she's happy now, and so on. And there's, there's a number of scriptures that make us think that that could be the case. The minority view is a machine. The soul-body idea is actually incorrect. There isn't actually a ghost in the machine. There, we are just 
these, these creatures and our brains generate consciousness. And so the, the philosophical mind-body problem, how does, how does a spiritual mind connect with a physical body? How does my consciousness say, pick up your right arm, put it down now? Now, how does that happen in some kind of soul-body thing? Where's the, where the connection to that? That's a, a little philosophical problem. And this more modern view, physicalism or kind of Christian materialism would say, there is no problem. It's the brain raising the arm. Uh, the brain just generates consciousness. And then when you're dead, there's no more consciousness. There is no soul that goes up to be with Jesus. What you experience when you're dead is nothing, like a computer that's pulled out of the wall. When you shut down, you're down, and then the resurrection, Jesus reconstitutes you, and you're like C-3PO, like, like you, you, come, you power up again. Oh, did anything happen? Yeah, yeah, you've been, you've been out for 2,000 years. Oh, cool, well, what's happened? Catch me up, you know? Um, and that's why, for instance, when Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, that fits both models. The first model, today you'll be with me in paradise, you're about to die, our bodies are about to go into the ground, but your soul will come up with my spirit and we'll hang out together in heaven. That's the traditional view. The other view is today, so far as you experience time, you'll be with me in paradise. Because as soon as you die, the next moment will be the, the final resurrection. So it's as if it's today for you, right? So there's not going to be any problem. Don't worry. In other words, Jesus is assuring him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Hang in there. It's not going to last much longer. It's, so you, you can, I think you can see why I don't get too worked up about the difference here, because I don't think it makes much difference. In either way, God's got everything under control. Everybody who's died in the faith is fine. You know, don't have to worry about them. And we'll all meet together at the final resurrection. And what happens in the intermediate state is... Uh, I don't really know. That's my elegant philosophical way of saying I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there are a number of questions asking if you could flesh out this idea of if we're not going to heaven, where are we going? Just if you could elaborate more, what does it look like? Where are we going? Okay. By the way, I want to just backtrack for a second. I was a Part of the problem with Q&A is that I sometimes forget some of the things I know that would, I would say more carefully when I was writing things down. I want to be careful about what I just said about those two views. There's another reason why the traditional view is very powerful. This, this is about the intermediate state. We're just going back one question. Why would it matter that the souls of the departed are with Jesus and conscious? If you're a Roman Catholic, it matters because now those people can pray for you. All right. So I want to be respectful of, the, of that that in both the Catholic and the Orthodox traditions, you can not only get the people around you to pray for you, but you can get the departed to pray for you too, because we're all Christians in this together. That's the logic of asking the saints to pray for you. In folk Catholicism, praying to the saints can actually end up being a kind of magic, like praying for favors from spiritual beings. But in, in properly theologicalized Catholicism, the, the teaching of that church would actually say it's to ask the communion of saints to pray for you. And so you can actually ask your grandmother to pray for you, even if she's gone, because she's still conscious and, and so on. So that's, that's why that would be important to Catholics. I'm not a Catholic. It doesn't bother me, so I don't care, honestly. But uh, to my Catholic friends, that would matter. So I was hoping that we could, uh, by saying that, you would not ask me that question, but I think you're going to ask me anyway. So pose it again, would you? Yeah. 
uh, odd to read the card this time. So it says, perhaps I missed it, but you said that we don't go into heaven when we die. So where do we go? Yes, I did just answer that. So that is the question of the intermediate state. And I said very quickly last night that the idea of going to heaven, yeah, you might briefly, that's what I meant. If, if in, in the traditional view, your soul would go up and hang out with Jesus in heaven. But if, if anybody's going to heaven, it's just in that understanding of the intermediate state and just until the resurrection. But the vision, the really clear vision of what's to come is a new earth, and that's where we'll be. We got several questions about self-harm and suicide in a biblical view. Um, this one in particular was, what, would someone go to hell automatically if they committed suicide? We got a number along those lines. Yeah, um, the Roman Catholic ethical tradition has seen suicide as a mortal sin um, because of uh, their uh, understandable reflection on what suicide means. Suicide is giving up on God, among other things. It's despair, it's hopelessness, right? That, that, that what's wrong that's making me so sad or so angry or so frustrated, there's no hope and so I'm going to check out of this hopeless and painful situation. So by implication, even if you never think about God, you are in effect saying, even God can't help me, I despair of God, that's faithlessness, ergo, that's giving up your faith, ergo, it's a mortal sin. You see, that's a kind of chain of reasoning that is, in, in Roman Catholic ethical thinking, that would end up with suicide as a mortal sin. And it's still on the books as such. In fact, recently a clergyman got in trouble for saying that at somebody's funeral. <laughs> uh, he was disciplined for perhaps being insensitive. Yes, I think so too. But that's the logic of that. Um, I, I see the logic of that, but I'm not persuaded. Um, I think, for instance, uh, the question of depression, broadly speaking, clinically speaking, and the question of despair, that's, it's pretty complex. And in some cases, it's actually uh, biological, right? It, it can actually be somebody who's having a, a brain state that is not of their own choosing, and people who are fine hours before plunge into some horrible mental state for no obvious reason and commit suicide. I've had friends, kids who've had that happen to them. Um, in my own uh, family of origin, my mom's side of the family is uh, troubled by depression and my aunt committed suicide. Uh, my brother has been engaged in self-harm, has been hospitalized for it. And there's no doubt that there's, there's an organic thing going on there. These are Christian people, by the way. Everybody I just mentioned are Christian people. Um, have had these terrible things uh, afflict them. And so I think that that's uh, a very murky question. And I would say there's no way we can know that. I mean, with respect to my Roman Catholic ethical theorists, um, I understand the nature of the logic, but I think that it's just impossible to x-ray somebody's soul and uh, from the outside and say, yes, they're culpable uh, for their bleak state uh, and they should have had faith. <laughs> well, that's that's pretty hard to say. And, uh, and I would say, let's not add the burden of that. I, I think, because uh, part, partly I want to say, who is helped by coming to that conclusion? Like, is anybody suicidal going to be kept from suicide? Because, well, don't do this, or you're going to commit a mortal sin. I mean, if somebody's that down, I'm not sure how well they're thinking about these sorts of things. So I, I just don't know that it helps to think that way. So I think it's helpful instead to say, let's 
you know, get help. I mean, don't try not to despair of God. I mean, call somebody. Don't don't suffer alone. Do the kinds of things that our mental health experts tell us to do. Reach out for help. We're here for you, and uh, and and God is there for you. But if you're despairing of God to the point of suicide, it seems to me that's on a kind of continuum with despairing of God further upstream, which lots of us do lots of the time. And that doesn't doom us to hell. That's a, that's a, a bad bump in the road. Um, so I'm, I'm not persuaded. What do you think are the implications of the climate change debate in the context of our duty to subdue the earth? Well, I was hoping to have some challenging questions this afternoon. <laughs> So, here's another a topic about which I don't know anything, and I have several opinions I'd like to share. <laughs> I'm not at all qualified to take part in the conversation about the nature of climate change. As a historian of ideas, I am not persuaded by, let me say a couple things preliminarily. I'm not persuaded by the argument that all scientists agree on X, therefore X is true. Because all scientists used to agree on lots of things that we now don't think are true. Not very long ago, all scientists believed that there was no such thing as a vacuum because there was no way that anything could be transported through a vacuum. And then, of course, we discovered something called space. Yeah, by golly, doesn't it look like a vacuum? And yet, Things go through it all the time, like planets, you know, and, and really big things. Everything, actually. <laughs> so that, that can't be right. So the, in the, the history of science, which is something of a bit of a hobby for me, I th I, I, the, fact, the fact that there is a scientific consensus about climate change, I think is true. I mean, as far as I can tell, most scientists, not everybody, but most scientists believe, in, and not just in climate change, but on, uh, to some extent, human-prompted climate change, um, well, you know, I, I don't want to say, like, uh, who cares? I'm shrugging a bit. But the, the mere fact that there's a scientific consensus doesn't mean it's necessarily true. On the other hand, the fact that there's a scientific consensus is nothing. I mean, these are the people who are supposed to know. And I have to be properly worried about that. But then the next question is, is it climate change or is it humanly caused climate change? And that's another question of which now, there, now there's less consensus about that. And thirdly is the political question, okay, suppose we agree that there's climate change and suppose we agree that much of it is attributable to human beings. The politics of fixing this, ah, that's a little closer to my zone, I find to be almost hopeless. Um, so what do I do with that ethically? Well, then I think, well, aside from huge, incredibly costly, science fiction type um, technological fixes that may or may not work and will impoverish us in the process, um, could we do other things? And this is where the, uh, the Scandinavian scientist and economist whose name I can't remember now, but he's, he's, he's featured in a really interesting documentary called Cool It. Get it, global warming? Cool It. <laughs> And he looks at what the European Union budgeted to deal with climate. This is what it would cost us to deal with climate change. And he says, okay, if you've got this huge amount of, of many billions of dollars, 
that might go into one of these amazing technological fixes, you know, seeding the clouds or shields or this or that or something else, right? Something out of Star Trek. Instead of doing that, what could you do with this huge whack of money instead? And the whole documentary shows all these things you could do to strengthen infrastructure, to allow poor people to move away from vulnerable areas and still be able to farm and to be able to make a living, to develop ways of protecting cities that are already vulnerable like Venice and so on. Like, you could do an awful lot with this money. And then I thought, you know, we should kind of do that anyway. Like, Venice is worth protecting anyway, right? And moving poor people out of a vulnerable area so they can make a living without worrying about being flooded, like, that's kind of a good idea. And I think that this is, to me, this is a wake-up call for us to do the things that we already should have been doing. So let's just do them and see what happens. We're going to be ahead of it. But to, to get all worked up about climate change and then think, and the only solution to that is for all the peoples of the world to come together in peace and harmony and agree in a global strategy. Like, that's not going to happen. The only way that's going to happen is if aliens invade. Because that's what Hollywood has taught me, right? The only way the world ever gets together is when aliens invade. <laughs> and until they do, no, let's do this other stuff instead. I bet you didn't think a theologian would go to that guy, right? Yep, yep. Uh, I'm tired and my blood sugar's low. <laughs> All right, this one's one of the things I hear people struggle with a lot um, in unbelief is the problem of evil. How can a just God allow suffering, et cetera? What are some ways we can speak to this? So on the problem of evil, the key is to read a really good book. There happen to be some right out there. We'll be selling them right after this. Indeed you will. The problem of evil is, of course, the number one problem for believers and non-believers, right? It's the number one challenge to faith and not just for people who aren't. It's the number one challenge that believers in the Bible face, right? God's own favorites are troubled by the problem of evil. Oh Lord, how long will you allow the righteous to suffer and the wicked to prosper? Right? You ever heard that before? Right? Every second psalm. Right? <laughs> David's asking, and, and, and Abraham's asking, and Habakkuk is asking, and and, and lots of people, Paul's dealing with people in the church is asking this. So this, this is, of course, the, the, the big uh, question. And it deserves uh, a, a careful answer. So kidding aside, that's why I ended up teaching a course on the problem of evil at a public university. I used to teach at the University of Manitoba in a religion department. And so every year I would have 90 to 100 students sign up for this course. And in a way that was appropriate for a public university, we worked through the question of the problem of evil. And out of it came this book I've written called, Can God Be Trusted? Because to, to, to give it, in a, in a sense, give it away, there's two ways that God can give us a satisfactory answer to the problem of the way he runs the world. Because God doesn't seem to run the world the way most of us think he should, right? I mean, lots of, a lot of us think God runs the world well enough that we have faith in him, but he also runs the world in such a way that we're not sure some days that he really knows what he's doing in my life or other people's lives. So there's really, it seems to me, there's only two ways God can go. If he wants us to keep having faith in him, he either has to show us what he's doing in such a way that we can understand it and approve of it 
and therefore we're okay with it. And in the book, I suggest why none of that's going to happen. I don't think actually we have the intellectual and moral capacity. I think if God were to unroll those kinds of blueprints, we wouldn't understand what we were looking at. Right? In a nutshell. Or he can give us such a good reason to trust him that when he seems to be misbehaving, we believe in him anyway. Seems to be though. Now, what he can't do is say, just believe. Right? That's foolish. Not only, it's irresponsible, but it's also impossible. None of us can just believe. You can't just say, well, I'm going to believe anyway. Like, like, belief isn't like that. Let me show you what I mean. Here in my hand, I, I'm holding um, a, an elephant. Now, you might think it's a bottle of water, but in fact, I'm incredibly strong. And <laughs> in one hand, I'm holding up a full-size pachyderm right here. And as long as you can believe that I'm really holding up an elephant, I'll give you $1 million. Okay, let's uh, you're having trouble. Five million, right? I'm a professor. I'm good for it. I, I'm incredibly wealthy. <laughs> All that tuition money went right here, right here, baby. Yeah, didn't go to administration. Ha! <laughs> ah! Sorry. <laughs> 10 mil, right? And I can see some of you are really trying. You know, if I squint a bit and I hit my head hard on the chair beside me, I might be able to believe that's an elephant. See, that's, that's not the way we are. You can't will to believe something like that. You believe what you think you have grounds for willy-nilly. Like, you can't help it, right? You can't help it. All the evidence is this is just a little bottle of water and there's no 10 mil. And all that's true. So that's... What, what God has to say to us is not, well, believe anyway. God has to give us such powerful grounds to trust him that when he does things we don't expect and we don't like, it's strong enough to make us keep trusting him anyway. And those would be pretty powerful grounds to help me maintain faith in him every time I go on Google News and see what latest crap the world's up to, right? It's going to have to be pretty strong. So in the book, I try to suggest what those grounds are. But because you're such a nice group, I'm going to give you a little hint. Whenever you're not sure what the correct answer is in Sunday school, what's the right answer? Jesus. That's right. <laughs> and in most of the literature about the problem of evil, even among Christian philosophers, as I was reading this about 20 years ago, I noticed that somebody was conspicuously absent. It was all God and the world as if we were a bunch of 18th century deists talking about the problem. And as an evangelical Christian, I really like Jesus, right? I mean, some of us evangelicals won't shut up about Jesus. It's Jesus all the time. Well, I thought, well, what difference would it make to look at the problem of evil if we remembered Jesus? How about all? All the difference. The main answer to why we trust God is not because we think the Christian religion makes the most sense, it's because we trust Jesus, and we think we have good reason to trust Jesus. So if we have good reasons to trust Jesus, and we think that Jesus is God, it works like this. Watch this little syllogism right before your very eyes. Major premise, Jesus is good. Minor premise, Jesus is God. Conclusion, God is good. And if those hold, so can your faith. And if not, 
I don't know how a Jewish person continues to believe in the goodness of God downstream of the Shoah, of the Holocaust. I just don't. But I can understand how Christians can continue to believe in God because we have Jesus, not just God in general. Okay? That's a hint. If you want to see it, 200 pages to flesh that out, that's back there for you. Okay. Uh, this is along the lines of a number of questions our student asked, but is it okay to be openly gay or bisexual and still be a Christian? Just a nice, light, easy question for you. <laughs> Next time we get different people to pick the questions. You... Uh, yes and no, he said with firm ambivalence. Is it okay? You know, it's okay to be a Christian no matter what you are, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, the gospel is open to you, right? Which is really good news for me because I've been a pretty bad sinner, and I'm not kidding about that now. I kid about a lot of things, I'm not kidding about that. I've been much worse sinner than you would think. And I'm not going to tell you about it because I'm ashamed of it, but it's true. So I'm really glad that the gospel is for everybody, and it's for me too. So we're all in this together. Secondly, almost everybody, perhaps everybody, has some kind of sexual hang-up, some kind of problem in this big zone of romance, sex, family, body, that, you know, that takes in a lot. And almost everybody's got something going on there that's, that's difficult, if not wrong. And lots and lots of us uh, have real serious problems in this large zone of relationships, sexuality, and so on. So again, it's not like my same-sex or trans friends are in their own little kind of peculiar place over here. We're all in this together. Right? I don't recall having a homoerotic thought or feeling in my life. It just, just not interesting to me. I just, I don't remember that. And I've been around some handsome men. Some of my friends are really handsome. I played sports. I've been in a locker room with lots of handsome guys uh, naked and couldn't care less. Like, ah, come on, let's go. Just don't care. So it's not interesting to me. That's not a problem for me. Women, on the other hand, are a problem for me. Because not only am I heterosexual, I'm really heterosexual. <laughs> Even women I don't think are pretty. When I start talking, yeah, yeah, she is. She's, she's, she's lovely. She's wonderful. Like, like, and so, so this is the problem, which is why you're all going to keep your distance from me the rest of the weekend. And <laughs> so you should. Right? Mm -hmm. right? Right here. Big ring. Okay. I'm old, baby, but I'm not dead. So we heteros shouldn't be picking on our friends who are differently oriented because we, we actually do most of the sexual sinning. Right? 
We're the ones who are doing most of the adultery. We're the ones doing most of the fornication. We're, doing, we're the ones doing most of the abuse, right? It's, it's people like us. So there's a lot in this zone we want to get straight. But what I really want to emphasize in this little Q&A session, because I give, I give whole weekend seminars on sexuality, so I'm trying to be careful not to give you that you know, now. But, but I, what I really want to suggest here is solidarity. We are in this together, right? We all have difficulties. And if we're following Jesus, we're all on the way, but we're not there yet. And when Paul says to bear each other's burdens, part of that burden is bear with each other's problems, even if they creep you out a little bit, right? Even, and the creeping you out might be that this person is creeped out by somebody else's sexuality, and this person is creeped out by this person's self-righteousness, right? about which Jesus is a lot harsher than he is about anything else, actually. So there's lots of sin to go around. There's lots of failure to go around. We're struggling together, and we need to love each other. And in that sense, we, we love each other as Jesus loves us. And we, we bear with each other as, as God in Christ has, has borne with us and forgiven us. But we don't want each other to stay the way we are now because nobody's arrived yet. I don't love you if I say, I love everything about you. That, that's not proper love, right? When my wife and I get married, right, she knew that I needed fixing and she was up for the task. She's... She hasn't completed the task, obviously, but, but not for lack of trying, not for lack of trying. God bless her. So we're in this together. And I don't, you know, frankly, I don't want my wife to put up with my crap. Right? That, some, days, some days I do. Yeah, some days I do. Like, oh, yeah. Yes, I know it's wrong, but it's embarrassing, so would you please? And, she, and it's not like she spots everything and complains about everything, right? She's, she's a, a kind and, and gentle and, and, in fact, a sobered person. You know, it's going to take longer than I thought. But, but we don't want that from each other. I don't want my friends letting me stay less than my best, right? I don't want my coach letting me stay less than my best. So, yes, I need to feel completely accepted by my wife, but I don't want her putting up with what's wrong with me. I want her helping me grow up. And, and that seems to me to be a concept we can get across pretty easily. It didn't blow your mind, right? That wasn't too complex. But in these very charged situations we have now, we're going to have to speak very simply, gently, softly, lovingly, and say, you know what? If you can put up with my crap, I'll put up with yours. And let's refer all of our big questions to Jesus and see what he thinks and ask him what he wants of us and when he wants them of us. Because Jesus doesn't try to fix us by supper time. He takes the long view, so we should take the long view with each other. So that is where I start, and then we get into the nitty-gritty beyond that. But without that starting place, I think everything downstream of that is, is, is problematic. This question is, how do we um, think about or justify the Israelite actions in some of the Old Testament books, such as Joshua, um, when some critics would say that's genocide or things similar to that? <laughs> yeah, so from... <laughs> you know, it's not their fault. I did say, well, you can kind of ask me anything, and now they are. <laughs> so what about genocide in the Old Testament? Sure, why not? There's a couple things to say. Do you know what we're talking about first? What we're talking about first is God's command to Israel when they're coming in to the promised land, and he says, in, a, in the case of a couple of nations, 
put them to the sword, basically exterminate them. Right? So, so it's pretty strong language. Now, there are some, some Bible-believing Old Testament scholars who think that this language is hyperbolic, that it doesn't literally mean kill them all. But others of us think, yeah, it probably does actually mean that, because if it doesn't mean that, what is it, how good is it that God says, well, just kill 50% of them? Like, it's not sure that's, that's a lot better. Um, so what's going on? And, and the logic of the situation seems to be extermination. Now, let me say one thing preliminarily, and then we'll say something directly on this. On the one hand, on the other hand. On the one hand, God calls Israel to be a light to the nations. He is not the God only of Israel who doesn't care about the other nations. When Israel comes into Canaan, we must beware of the cartoon that says that God is a tribal God who cares only about Israel and doesn't give a fig about the other nations and just kind of shoves them out of the way or into the Mediterranean or into death or whatever so that Israel can have its place. He's not like that. He's not a tribal God like that. He says to Israel, I'm picking you to hold you up as an example of what I can do for anybody. Israel's mission in the world is to be an object lesson that basically isn't very flattering to Israel. God's saying, if I can do that with Israel, I can do it with anybody. Right? It's like a coach who has a new method, and he picks the worst guy in the team, and he makes him a star. And he says, if I can help this guy, well, he can help anybody. That's more the logic. God doesn't say, I picked you because you were wiser and greater and more noble than the other nations. I picked you because you aren't. And later in the prophets, God says, Esau I have loved. He is mine. Not Esau I've hated. That shows up too. But, but Edom is mine, and Egypt is mine, and these other nations, they are mine too. So the first thing to say is that, is that God in the Old Testament is not a tribal God who loves Israel and hates everybody else. That's not true. God loves the nations and picks Israel to be a light to the world. So when God calls Israel to participate with him in the extermination of a nation, that's pretty drastic. It's not as if God doesn't care. He does. With me so far? So why would God do that? Not because those nations are in the way. That's not why. It's because the cup of wrath of the Canaanites is full. And that idiom means they have been pouring sin into this chalice, into this receptacle. They have been pouring sin and sin and sin into it, and now I can't take it anymore. The cup's full, and it's judgment time. How full is it? The Canaanites had descended culturally to the place that by the time Israel encounters them, they are sacrificing their children by fire before their idol, Moloch. You can't get more degraded than that, right? You can't get more horrible than that of taking your kids, not just killing them towards your God, but burning them. The human nervous system, I'm told, can take cold and you go into shock and you drift off into sleep. We Canadians know about that. <laughs> but fire treats the nervous system differently. It's excruciating. 
It's the worst thing you could possibly do as a civilization, and that's the civilization that God says they're done. He actually says, basically, he implies, you can't come back from that. Even I can't get you back from that. And those kids that are being put to the edge of the sword, implicitly, they're better off because their fate is to be burned. And Israel comes in, mows them down, and from a Christian point of view, we have an insight that our ancient Hebrew forefathers didn't have. We know that they're in the arms of Jesus. Right? When they die, God takes them as his own, those little ones. So I don't ever mean to suggest that something like genocide isn't horrific. It is. The only thing that could justify it is if letting that nation continue would be worse, which I think it is in those cases. Okay? Um, can you drop a handful of names of modern theologians that we should check out? Yes, I'm being asked, well, what's a theologian? That's a good question, too. Um, if we think of people who study the Bible as biblical scholars who tell us this is what's happening in Genesis, this is what's happening in the Gospels, right? they're explainers of this literature, and then historians of Christian thought help us understand what Christians have thought over the last couple of thousand years, then theologians are people who listen to the Bible experts and the historians of Christian thought, and they pay attention to whatever other experts they need to to tackle that particular issue. So they're multidisciplinary people who pull it together and say, and now this is what I think God wants us to think about X here and now. That's what theologians should be doing, right? Is helping us understand from all this information what we should think about the nature of the human person or the nature of sexual ethics or the nature of politics. Theologians and ethicists would do that, okay? So in this broad sense of theology, the reason I, I kind of hesitated a bit is that it was reading a number of academic contemporary theologians that alienated me from theology. And what gave me my, because uh, I started as a historian, and what gave me a love of theology was reading the great theologians of the past. Uh, I'm, I'm relatively unimpressed by the 20th century in theology in general. Um, uh, I was a 19th century specialist for a while, and I think that's where a lot of the really interesting stuff is done in the 16th and the 13th. But 20th century, not so great. But that doesn't mean there aren't some good people to read. Um, I think it depends on your level of interest, but many of you uh, know the, the great British author C.S. Lewis because of the Narnia Chronicles, right? And because of sense of, of uh, progress to say, Yes, I used to read C.S. Lewis, but now I'm past all that, right? No, he's still smarter than you. <laughs> like, way smarter. Um, and if you, if you read something like Lewis's book, Miracles, it's not finished off the way an academic theologian would finish it off. There aren't enough footnotes. Uh, there aren't enough references to the tradition. Um, but in terms of ideas per chapter, and interesting theological ideas. Lewis's often overlooked book, Miracles, is really interesting. And, and I've used that in some of my graduate theology classes I've assigned that and said, you know, you might think you understand Lewis, but 
he's got some interesting stuff going on here. So he's a kind of a, an unusual person to read who's still very readable and very thoughtful as, as a theologian. Uh, unfortunately, though, nowadays, we have a lot of good theologians, but they, they tend to write for each other. Um, and they don't write uh, theology for the interested uh, layperson. Um, I've tried to do some of that myself. A couple of other people have. Um, but it's, it's actually fairly hard to find. Um, so what we have instead are pastor scholars like Tim Keller, um, who's written some uh, helpful stuff, uh, and I think... Uh, he'd be a good guy to put on your list if you don't know Tim Keller, K-E-L-L-E-R. Pastor's in New York, just uh, retiring now, but has gotten a bunch of uh, useful books out. Um, Alistair McGrath is a scientist and theologian in Britain who's written a number of popular books. Alistair's not a great writer, and he's not a great theological thinker. Alistair's better at accounting for the history of theology. And even when he thinks he's writing theology, he tends to refer to the history of theology rather than write systematically, but uh, I, I know Alistair pretty well, and, and I like him a lot, and he's a brilliant guy. Um, but his popular stuff's pretty good, too. So Alistair McGrath uh, could be helpful on topics that you are interested in as well. Um, I should have a better list, but those are a couple that come to mind. Um, this one is what happens to people who never hear of Christ. Uh, for examples, we're given North Koreans or um, Native Americans or yeah, just folks who have never heard of Christ. Yeah. Um, yeah, what, what, what about these folks? There's, there's two main answers in the Christian tradition to what about those who've never heard the gospel. All authentic Christians, both of these kinds, would agree that the only way anyone is saved is to be, in fact, saved by God that we can't save ourselves, we need God to save us, and that work is done especially, not exclusively, but especially by the work of Jesus Christ. Right? God saves us through the Holy Spirit and other things too, but, but particularly by the life, suffering, death, resurrection of Jesus. Jesus does something, as we talked about a little earlier in this session, which now seems to be several weeks long. <laughs> right? um, and, and Jesus saves us. So everybody agrees with that. That, that, that every, every good Christian, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, you name it, we should all agree that the work of Jesus is essential to saving everybody. That's why we all have crosses in our churches, because we all agree with that, okay, so far? Where we disagree, where the, there are two possibilities here, is on the question of, do you have to know about that to be blessed by it? So it's not a question about whether the work of Jesus is essential. Every Christian believes that. The interesting question is, but do you need to know about that work to be saved by it? The majority tradition has been yes. Um, picking up some phrases from Paul, how will they be saved unless they hear the gospel, and how will we hear that without a preacher, and so on in Romans. I'm, I'm very badly paraphrasing that. But it's, it, the sense is you have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. There's no name under heaven by which we can be saved. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But unfortunately, they're blurring together verses that actually are about this. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Everybody believes that. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. But that's at this level, this level of Jesus. You see what I'm saying? It's up here, the question, but do you need to know about the name of Jesus? Do you need to know about what Jesus did to be saved by it? And the majority tradition is yes, you do. Ergo, everyone who hasn't heard this 
is necessarily lost, right? Ipso facto. If they haven't heard it, they're lost. And this was very powerful motivational language in the 19th century missionary movement, that there is a Niagara of souls plunging into a lost eternity in China and Japan and Korea and South Asia. These people haven't heard the gospel and they are unavoidably going to hell because they haven't heard the gospel. So this is a very powerful uh, trope in Christian tradition. I think it's wrong. I think it's dangerously wrong. I think missionary work is fabulously important, but not because God can't or isn't or won't do anything for those people who haven't yet heard, about mission, heard from missionaries. Because, why do I think that? Not just because I don't want to, because who wants to think that? Right? Do you really want to think that? Millions of people are going to help who've never heard the gospel. That doesn't sound right, does it? It doesn't sound ethical. It doesn't sound right of God to do that. So let's not believe it if we don't have to. Now, if we have to, I will. I'll try, okay? To be honest, if I really think the Bible says that is true, then as a Christian, I am shut up to believing that. Like, I just have to try to at least profess it. But I don't want to believe that. I don't want to believe that God lets millions of people go to hell who've never had even a chance to hear the gospel. So let's see if I don't have to believe that. And helpfully, I look at the New Testament where it talks about faith. And one of our favorite passages in the New Testament in faith is Hebrews chapter 11. Right, a whole chapter that talks about examples of faith. And many of you will know that. I can leave that for homework. But Hebrews chapter 11 is where these various people are held up by a Christian author to his Christian audience, it's a New Testament book, as examples of faith. Not one of them would have heard of Jesus because they all lived before he did. All these examples by a New Testament author to a New Testament audience about faith in the nature of the case, could not have heard of Jesus because they're all Old Testament examples. And he's saying, this is what we should have. We should have faith like them. Oh, well, what's faith? Well, he actually tells us. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. You know, the evidence or the, or, or the sense of, of the grounds for things not seen. Faith is knowing certain things, having grounds, and then trusting what you don't know. And that's a pretty good definition of faith. Once you unpack it, Right? Faith is believing certain things are true and then trusting that other things are true. That's what generic faith is. And these people knew certain things about God and then they trusted God beyond that. That's what faith is. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. But those who believe that God exists and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's what the author of this chapter says faith is. You have to believe that God exists and believe that God is good, that he will reward those who are willing to give themselves to him. So this really is postural. There is, there is a kernel of actual knowledge. You have to know that there's God, and you have to believe that God is good, but mostly it's about your posture of giving yourself to God, however you understand it. You with me so far? Because, frankly, most of those Old Testament examples, those aren't people with doctorates in theology. Right? They wouldn't have known all that much about God. Some of them come from the book of Judges where the knowledge of God is extremely thin and pretty distorted. And yet they're held up as examples of faith as well. So the actual, now don't get me wrong, I think theology is wonderful. I teach it for a living. And I think theology, properly understood, makes a really positive difference in people's lives. But you're not saved by a high score on a theology test. You're saved by God who reaches down and takes hold of your hand 
And if you will hold God's hand, he's already there holding yours. By faith, they trusted God. It's, it's a posture toward God. Well, now, that's interesting. Because now you could have fairly bad theology and still be saved. Right? You could have fairly bad theology, but if you've actually become acquainted with God, not the concept of God, with actual, like God, the Spirit, who is confronting you in your heart. If you have this encounter with God, and when God comes to you, and you are willing to take his hand, you're good. And if you're not going to take his hand, then you're not. But that's the dynamic. It's not about how much theology you correctly believe. It's about what you do with God when you encounter God. Well, that could, that no one is without knowledge of God. It used to bug me as a kid because I thought, if everybody starts at zero with no knowledge of God, if they don't get the knowledge of God brought to them by missionaries, they're doomed. But that's not what Paul says is the human situation. Paul says the human situation is that we all are born with knowledge of God, but then we repress it or we squeeze it into other shapes or we domesticate it some way. But Romans 1 says, in fact, everybody has knowledge of God, even if it's badly understood. So I conclude from that that people whose theology isn't correct, but who actually encounter the true God, if they trust him and commit to him, they're good. That's saving faith. And the work of Jesus is applied to them. Now, when they later find out about Jesus, they're going to embrace that. Because why wouldn't they? They're already connected to the true God. But they don't have to know about Jesus yet to be able to be grasped by God and to hold on to his hand. Right? They don't have to know about that yet to be to benefit by it. So it's actually a really good thing that people can be saved even if their theology is bad because in my view, most people in Dallas have crappy theology. <laughs> right? Right? There are mega churches full of people who have badly distorted understandings of God in America today. So if correct theology is what gets you in, we're, a lot of us are in pretty bad shape. But thankfully, that's not the case. Now, I don't think that this means that if you are a pious believer and a faithful observer of just any old religion, that will get you in. That's not true. Right? You have to believe that God, the one true God, exists, and you have to respond to that true God when he calls. Now, you might be able to do that through the dim distortions of Islam. You might be able to do that through the dim distortions of devotional Hinduism. You might do it through the dim distortions of Amida Buddhism. But if you are a faithful atheist, you're in trouble. Right? Which would not only include sort of Western atheists, but Theravadan Buddhists, certain kinds of Hindus, Confucianist Taoists. If you refuse the knowledge of God that you're given and you want to go alone, then you go alone and you're in big trouble. So this is, this is no sugarcoating, right? I'm not suggesting that, oh, we can just relax and not, not evangelize people. No, no. People need to hear the gospel. But why? Not just so that we make sure they have a chance to be saved. They, God looks after that. It's so that they can grasp God, who's grasping for them, and then they can grow up. Because it's not enough, as we said this morning, for them to get saved. They have to grow up. And it's very hard to grow up as a Christian in an Islamic community. 
It's really hard to grow up in a Hindu community as a Christian. You don't even know about Jesus. Ben is not even a Christian yet. So of course we need to tell them about Jesus and give them the scriptures and give them the benefit of church fellowship. There's all kinds of good reasons to be engaged in missionary work. We don't have to use the idea that everybody otherwise is going to hell and there's nothing God's doing about that. We don't have to say that, and I don't think we should. So unfortunately, this is our last question of the evening. But as you can see by this big stack of cards we have, you guys asked a lot of really good questions. And I would just encourage you guys before we close to don't just hang on to these questions, engage with them, go buy lots of books back there after this that our friend Dr. Stackhouse has written. Uh, but engage with these things. Talk to your campus pastors. Uh, we also had a lot of very personal notes. Um, I know a number of us in this community are hurting. Talk to your campus staff, talk to your friends. We're here, we're the community of Christ. We're here, talk to one another. Um, so the last thing, last question um, is, is it okay to listen to other philosophies, i.e. Eastern philosophy, in order to try and achieve inner shalom in our lives? Or are these philosophies ultimately damaging to our Christian faith? Uh, great. <clears throat> Uh, I'll rephrase the question to answer it. I, uh, when I, uh, my, I think my third job was teaching in a religion department, as I mentioned, in a provincial university in Canada, and one of the, the tasks we all had to take was a section of the World Religion Survey course. So whatever your background, we had all these surveys that, we, that needed staffing, and even though I was the modern Christianity specialist, I'm thrown in there, teach world religions. Okay. Now that wasn't terribly daunting to me. I'd had to qualify in Judaism and Islam as part of my doctoral work, and I was interested in the other one, so great, let's, let's do it. And I taught world religions off and on now for 30 years, and I really enjoy it, and it's been really helpful to me as a Christian thinker to have studied about other religions. And as, as I think probably you can even tell, it gives me a little more plausibility as a Christian if I actually know something about other religions. Because people say, oh, you actually you know, got out of your little box and bothered to find out what the majority of people in the world think, uh, as opposed to you uh, Christians. But beyond all that, beyond it being helpful uh, to evangelize and to, to be an apologist and to uh, teach people about the cultures of the world, it's actually blessed me, personally. Um, I find that precisely because some of the religions of the world um, are so focused on certain things in a way that I don't think is appropriately balanced. They overemphasize some things, they underemphasize other things, and of course, uh, most fatally, they ignore Jesus, right? So that's why I'm not a Buddhist or I'm not a Taoist or something else, because Jesus is the heart of the world. And if you don't get him right, everything else is gonna spin off center. But they get some things kind of right. And I found that uh, for instance, certain Taoist poetry is really helpful for a guy like me who tends to be type A and I tend to be a workaholic and I tend not to want to wait for history to happen. I tend to want to make history happen, if you know what I mean, right? Which is a very interesting way of saying I'm a control freak, right? <laughs> right? Um, I prefer not to use the term freak, I prefer aficionado. I'm a control aficionado, right? But it's unhealthy, and I'm why I'm too tight. And Taoism helps me be more natural and to go with the flow and to be more like water and less like a stiff pole, 
right? Good. And Islam, in the very stark way it sees the nature of God and humanity, sometimes reminds me in ways that are resonant of the Old Testament about, about the, my relationship to God. But I take those good things that I learned from them the way I take things from Western philosophers who aren't Christian. And I benefit from them. And the way I read English literature from people who aren't necessarily Christian, and they give me different kinds of, of insights, or American literature, or literature from other countries. Learning from people who see things fairly clearly and put them in powerful ways is just learning. Whether it comes to you in the t under the category of religion, or it comes to the category of literature, or the category of science, or the category of art, like I'll learn from anybody. Why? Because, as I suggested last night, everybody everywhere is a human being who is created by God and, in a sense, still programmed to make shalom. Right? People are still making shalom as best they can around the world. And I can benefit from that, even as I'm going to properly refract it and, and critique it through a Christian filter. And that's where I need a properly developed Christian mind so I won't let too much in but also so I won't keep too much out. Christians can have their filters set too high and they don't benefit from others. Or we can have them set too low and then we're confused and maybe even knocked off center. So the key is to try to calibrate things to the appropriate level so that we learn what we should and we're cautious of what we shouldn't. And frankly, that's one of the reasons I'm enthused about focus is that my sense from talking to the leaders is that they're trying very much to help you to do that. And, and even though they have made a tragic mistake in their choice of speaker this weekend, everything else is pretty good. So thank you. Thank you so much for talking with us.